way that I make decisions today still affects the way that I deal with things today. I can remember longing to see my dad so much that I would fake illness at school just so they would hopefully call my dad and he, he might come and get me. It wasn't long uh, because of my dad's absence and because of my mom's, although she was there physically, and my mom, I love my mom, don't get this wrong, I, uh, don't get me wrong, and don't, don't let me state it wrong. My mom did everything she could. But if any women in the world have my respect, it, they are single mothers. How you can maintain a home, maintain income, maintain sanity, and try to raise children by yourself without a spouse, you have my respect and my love. And God bless single moms. But mom was just flat overwhelmed with five kids. And of course, Jack was one of them. So you know that was a, you know this kid was a handful in himself. But mom was, um, she just let us kind of run the streets. And when you don't watch kids at all, they always find, typically will find the worst influences. So I began to hang around people that, that uh, were doing the wrong things and began to, uh, you know, just, I remember being in the fifth grade at Oakdale Elementary School right over here when I started smoking weed. Fifth grader, think about it. I had been drinking probably for a year before that. <laughs> just sporadically would sneak in and get some of my brother's uh, alcohol or he would give me a little bit of it, you know, thinking it was funny. And he did the same thing with weed, thinking let's just watch Jack get high. And then that's what they got to do for the next number of years because I began to use so much that at age 13, I had broken into a home to steal some drugs. And just, you know, being a kid, not even thinking about, you know, what the effects would be if I took too many of them, overdosed on them. And uh, so at 13 years of age, having to be taken by ambulance down to Carolina's Medical Centers and, and uh, have my stomach pumped and, and uh, losing three days of my life, winding up using drugs so much and just goofing off all the time that at age, uh, that I got kicked out of West Mecklenburg High School uh, in the 10th grade. I got caught smoking weed, and, and they said, you know, you know, sit here, don't move, and, you know, the resource officer's coming down, and, and you're in big trouble, and of course I wasn't going to sit there and just wait on them to come and lock me up, so I took off and, and then couldn't come back to school, so in essence just quit school in the 10th grade and drop out. So here I am at that point in my life, guys and girls, no dad, missing him. The example I had had of my father when he was there was terrible, a drunk, raging fool. And then uh, high school dropout now, breaking into houses, stealing stuff, just to get drugs and money. Drugs continued, got worse and worse until I was shooting dope, and began riding motorcycles. I've been riding motorcycles all my life. I've always loved anything on two wheels and, uh, and anything fast, and so I was... Uh, but I began to ride a motorcycle exclusively. It's the only kind of transportation I had. Well, I had a, a terrible, terrible wreck on my motorcycle and uh, really messed my knees up and my left foot up really bad. Kim and I were dating them, and she remembered that. And I don't remember anything except right before the wreck, and then I remember a guy looking at me from an ambulance saying, how many fingers do you see? What day of the week is it? I answered all those wrong questions wrong, and he said, you're going to the hospital. And so I wanted to get my bike, though, 
uh, fixed. And so what I did after that terrible crash, I started to heal up, had a broken collarbone. I can still tell you when it's going to rain. <laughs> Uh, it, it's it's gonna rain, y'all. You know, I promise you that now. But uh, that thing hurts, and I want to get my bike fixed. And and so I went and I met this guy that I think God was going to use in a tremendous way to help bring me to to Himself eventually. His name was George Baker. Right up off of Hobus Road, he owned a little motorcycle shop called Baker Bike Works. I took my bike up there, and he said, well, I'm slammed. I can't work on it, but if I need some help, if you could help me around little things around the shop, I'll teach you how to mechanic on them, and you can stay after a while, after hours, and you know, begin to work on your motorcycle and get it fixed. And I was like, cool, sounds like a deal to me. And so I began to work on bikes and things like that. Now, for a long time, George and I were good friends, and he had uh, he had his brother, who was a really clean-cut guy. Yeah, George and I were long-haired, hippies, and uh, just goofing off all the time. But he had his brother, who was a surgeon in the Air Force. His name was Terry. Terry Baker. Terry was coming up from Air Force Base in Texas, rode his motorcycle all the way there, all the way here. And we were going to go ride up on the Blue Ridge Parkway and ride the mountains. The day before we did that, Kim and I went up uh, in... Uh, a car and rode the same path because I wanted to know what the roads were like and where we were going to go because we raced all the time. That's what we did. We rode fast bikes. And so we wanted, we'd get up there and the four or five of us guys would be riding really, really hard. So I wanted to kind of pre-scout the roads and we did that. Well, we were in this little car and I not remember what kind of car it was now. But I know that we hit this one really sharp curve. I saw this uh, sign that showed like almost a, a you know, danger, you know, sharp curve, and a slow uh, sign saying slow down. And I wasn't paying a lot of attention, and, and I know in the car, I spun the car out in the turn. And um, I remember specifically saying, wow, I have got to warn these guys about that turn. Because I knew we were going to be riding super fast. And that was my first time on that road. And I said, boy, we can get up here. I've got to warn the guys about that turn. Because it just really would sneak up on you. You know, you hit the turn and that really tightened up. So we went up on our motorcycles. And we were going to go uh, riding the next day. Got up and we'd been riding some. And uh, we were riding pretty fast. There was George, who was a really smooth road racer. I couldn't keep up with him super fast. Super smooth in the front. I was behind him. Terry, his brother, the surgeon, was behind me. And then way picking up the back was a guy named Grunt, or uh, Ed. I don't know why we called him Grunt, but that was just his name. So if I saw him today, I'd say, hey, Grunt. I forgot to forget his name was Ed, but he was just a slower rider. And so George was up there. I was right behind George. And George went into this one curve. And as soon as I saw him going into that curve, I saw in my peripheral vision that sign that said slow, you know, and, and warning. And I, and I remember thinking, oh, man, this is the curve, and I forgot to tell him. And I was going way too fast to make it for my riding skills. I got on all the brakes I could get on my right front handlebar, you know, for front brake. Stumped on, just stood on the, the rear brake and just leaned into it and pushed the handlebar. Somehow, somehow, I made it, but listen to this. As soon as I realized that, at that moment, Terry, who was riding a turbocharged bike, came from behind me on the gas. Just went by me so quick. 
I just saw him, and he beeped his horn. Beep, beep. Last thing I ever heard him do. I came out of the curve, and I saw George. I couldn't see anybody immediately because there was another curve. And then I saw, got to a long enough straight where I could see George, but I didn't see Terry. Well, I ran him down, flashing my headlights, took me a moment to do that, and I said, George, man, I said, did Terry pass you? He said, no, he did not. He didn't pass me. What do you mean? And I said, then you've got to go for help. I know exactly where he just flew his bike right over a cliff. And on that same curve, where I could have warned him, where I should have warned him, I went back and I found him. And his bike had gone over the cliff. It was laying way down in the basement, smoking. He was trapped under the guardrail. Stuck under it, somehow come off the bike when it slid and he, he went under the guardrail. He was dead when I found him. I kept trying to revive him. Couldn't do anything to get him to breathe and never forget it was the strangest feeling I've ever felt in my life to feel his wrist and it, I could literally feel that his wrist was warm. You know, you don't notice things like that typically if you touch a person, but you know, it was weird. I, like I could feel that his wrist was warm, but there was no pulse. <coughs> And he was gone. And I had to sit there probably an hour and a half before a before a uh, ambulance or any assistance ever got there because in those days we didn't have cell phones. George had to go up to a ranger station five six miles up the road and get him, you know, and call for help. And I'll never forget when George was riding back up on his bike and he saw by then everything that was going on. And man, I had to tell him. I had to tell him that his brother didn't make it. Out of all of us guys on that day that humanly deserved to live, Terry was probably the guy that did. Somehow he died. Out of all of us. Born a lot of guilt about that. Still do. Still spend my life trying to tell people and warn them that the road doesn't go on forever. You've got to be careful never forget George every time we would stop on the way home. That was the longest, loneliest ride in my life. And I loved to ride, but I hated riding on that day. Kept waiting for him to ride up. It seemed like such a dream. And every time we'd stop, George would take his helmet off and his face was just red. He was crying and he was saying, can't believe. Can't believe he's gone. Oh my God, I can't believe my brother's gone. He's gone. I never tried to teach him to do right. Now it's too late the weirdest feeling in the world. My mom and dad had divorced. My mom had remarried twice. Both men were drunks and just mean, and so I didn't get along with them. So I moved out. I lived on my own since I was about 16 years old, 15 and a half. 16 years old, I got in a little cement block house. You remember that house well. 213 North Tottenham Street. Just a bumpy, trashy little house. But it was a place that we had a roof over our heads. <sighs> Didn't know what to do. My little brother had moved in with me because both of my stepdads were rear ends and didn't like kids. They just wanted our mom, didn't want us. So my younger brother had moved in with me. And now I'm sitting here watching my little brother, who, guess what, was a clean-cut guy who was all into sports, not into the stuff that I was into, just like George's brother Terry had been the clean-cut guy, not into the stuff that George was into. Now I'm thinking of George's words that keep ringing in my ear. 
never tried to teach it to do right. I just remember saying, God, I don't even know if you're real. I would have called myself a complete atheist at that time, but I just remember thinking, I gotta do something. I gotta do something. I can't let my brother, my little brother, just perish like this, my little brother David. And uh I remember my little brother was going to the beach on vacation, uh, on spring break, spring vacation, spring break. And I just knew he had graduated. I was proud of him graduating. I just knew though that something bad was going to happen or he was going to die. I didn't really know how to pray, except I had prayed a couple of times. And I prayed, God, if you'll get him there safe, I don't even know if you're real, but if you'll get him to the beach safe and not let him get killed. One of my best friends, Tommy Ellis, had been killed going to the beach. And I said, God, if you'll get him there safe, if you're real, I'll search you and find you and I'll serve you, but, but you've got to, you have got to bring somebody to me because I don't know where to go to find you. It's about like what I prayed. It's about what I prayed. When my little brother got to the beach safe and God sent somebody to me, a guy came to witness to me. Here's what I didn't know. My wife had begun to attend this church, Calvary Baptist Church. Excuse me. My sister had begun to attend the Calvary Baptist Church. My sister Kathy and uh, my older sister. And uh, God bless her. She had taken one of these little cards like this, whatever they were using on that day, took a welcome card, put my name and my address on it, and gave it to Chip Sloan, who was the pastor. And she said, my brother's in a real tough time right now. He just had a friend that got killed. He's on drugs. Would you mind going and visiting him and trying to lead him to Christ? I could have killed her for doing that then, but I'm real thankful for doing it now. <laughs> I visited a couple of churches because God did get my brother to the beach stage, right? So I, I wanted to be true to my word, so I started visiting a couple of churches. But on a Monday night, I think it was, when we were sitting there just catching a bus, getting high, on my, on my front door, the knock. I looked out through the people. My house, you have to understand, was a party house in the whole neighborhood. You, you know I'm crazy now, but I was really crazy. <laughs> I looked out, I was like, oh my gosh, it's that preacher. Let me tell you who it was. It was Tony Harper. Some of you have heard this several times. Forgive me for those who haven't. Tony Harper, who's one of our pastors, dear wife at the church, and another man who was uh, here and sang in our music, Roger Hardy, started sang in our music program for years, still a friend. I went outside. I said, you guys stash everything. I'll just go outside and get rid of them. I went out on the front porch to talk to them. And I asked them some pretty frank questions. I said, listen, I've been to church a few times, and uh, nobody's ever talked to me. I've never heard a preacher, never heard anybody else talk about getting born again. Why every time I go to a Baptist church y'all talk about getting born again? So Tony started to tell me, and he started to tell me what it meant to be born again. 
that admit you, you realize you're lost, you realize you need a Savior, and you realize Jesus is a Savior, and you realize that he is your Savior, he came and died in your place and suffered to pay the penalty for your sins, and if you would trust him, he would save you. He's telling me this on the front porch. We've been smoking weed inside when they walked up on the porch. Tony will tell you this day. They smelled it, and Roger said, probably not a good time to go in. And Tony said, it was an old Vietnam vet, Tony said, we're going in. <laughs> like it or not, we're going in. Tony sat last week and left with me and told me, he said, I'm so glad we went in. And I said, man, I am too. I cannot tell you, hallelujah, I cannot tell you how glad I am that you went in, that you came on in. He presented the gospel to me, and I told him, I said, Tony, all this stuff sounds good. And I don't want to die and go to hell. I just watched a buddy of mine do it. And I'm telling you, Tony, if I died right now, I'd beat people to hell that died two weeks ago. But if Jesus would save me, he's going to have to save me like I am. But I can't tell you that I can stop using drugs, and I can't tell you that I even want to. I said, I got a bag of weed in there right then. And I said, I, I'm not even sure I could. I can, I can tell you I'm not going to walk back in there and throw it away. Tony Harper looked at me and he said, you know what I had to give up, Jack, when I got saved? You know what I had to give up before I could get saved? And I said, what? We were just having a real man-to-man -man conversation. I was completely lost. I didn't know what church even was. He said, you know what I had to give up? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. But I came to Jesus with all my heart. And I begged him and asked him to save me and forgive me. And he said, now I'm in it. And I didn't have hardly any of the answers and I didn't give up anything. I just came to him and cast myself on him. And he said, he saved me. He said, Jack, you don't wait to get all the sin out of your life to come to Jesus. Because the biggest sin you have in your life is that Jesus is not in your life you're rejecting him as Savior, but he wants to save you, and his spirit will then come and live in you, and then he'll help you get rid of the things that aren't well and aren't good for you. And I looked at him and I said, you mean to tell me that Jesus Christ, if I come to him, he will save me and forgive me of my sins? Now you got to realize, I'm just off the hills with my best friend's brother getting killed, all kind of crazy stuff happening at a rough point in my life. He said, that's exactly what I'm telling you, is that he'll save you, he'll change your life. And on that evening, on my front porch, I wasn't even at church, I bowed my head, and I prayed a prayer, Tony led me in a prayer, and I prayed and asked the Lord Jesus Christ into my life to save me and forgive me. I promise you, my wife says, I walked out on that front porch, and I was one man. And when I came back in, I was a different man. She'll tell you. She said, I didn't even know if I wanted to be with you anymore. We were living together, unmarried. And I tell you, from that day to this day, I have found Jesus Christ to be true in every claim he has ever made. I still struggle. Sure, I do. I still fail all the time. But here's the one thing. See, I had always looked at Christians and when I did, I saw them as hypocrites because they would seem very self-righteous to me. They would always be dressing up and going to church, and then they were some of the meanest people I knew at the time. 
grew up in a neighborhood where I'm not serious. Some of them were just downright hateful or mean. And that, I grew up with a couple that dressed their kids up, went to school, uh, went to church with them all the time. But every time we accidentally kicked our football or hit a softball over the fence that they put up to keep kids out of their yard, they'd keep our ball. <laughs> they wouldn't just throw it back and say, hey, don't be careful, you're going to break the window. They'd keep the ball. Now, if you do that kind of stuff to lost kids in your neighborhood, don't you ever expect any of them to come to Jesus on your account? Because that stuff pushed me away from it. Pushed me away from people who claim to know Jesus. Because I saw that on one sense they were saying, we know the Lord, we've met the Lord. And on the other hand, they're just being mean and hateful. I thought, well, if that's what knowing the Lord makes you, then I don't want any part of it. But the problem was not that I had my eyes on those people. It probably was. Part of it was that I kind of thought Christians should be perfect. Or at least they shouldn't mess up. And the truth is Christians aren't people who are perfect. Christians mess up all the time. We're just forgiven. We mess up all the time. But we're just forgiven. And I had to realize that I could come to Christ with all of my sins and with all of my, my bad things in my life and with all of my attitudes and drug addictions and everything else. And he would accept me like that. And then he would come in and he did come in and he would live in me and give me the power to live for him. Boy, I'm telling you, when I prayed that prayer, what a change was made on that day. I knew something was different. Here's why. Because every day, for years and years and years, I had to be high in order to be happy. Now, I could be happy when I was straight and miserable when I got high. It was the craziest thing in the world. It was a total change. Total, total change. And... Just so much stuff started started happening and, and uh, started coming to church at Calvary. And when I came to Calvary, I just want to say this. I'm so privileged to be the pastor of this church now, but I, I mean this. Some of you who were here then and some of you who are even coming now and are continuing the legacy of Calvary, I just want to say I owe you so, so much. I'm here because the Lord God Almighty called me here, and I wouldn't have come here without his call, but I want to tell you, pastoring this church was a dream that I thought could never happen. I thought it could never happen. Why? Because you're looking at a guy who still remembers what he was. Still remembers before Christ, so to speak. And, and gosh, I had people. My Sunday school teacher, Francis Harkey, was sitting right back there this morning. And I said, my Sunday school teacher, Francis Harkey, was, had me in her Sunday school class. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine having me for a Sunday school kid? I'm asking all these questions. And, oh, I probably caused that poor woman so many troubles. She was sitting back there shaking her head. No, no. And I know I did. I know she's just being kind. I was learning the Bible and soaking it up. And, Kim and I were living together, and we said we knew it wasn't right, and so we talked about it, and I talked to my pastor about it. 
And so we separated for several months, and she moved back home to her mom so that we could start fresh and clean. And I'll tell you this, God gave us such a new start that when we stood before him and got married, we felt like chaste virgins on that day. God gave us a brand new start. Christ was there blessing our, our union. And then one day, I started helping in the, the ministry, uh, their church, I wanted to serve. And so I started, we had a tape ministry. In those days, giving away cassette tapes, taking them to all the homebound people. And uh, so uh, Audrey Fry and Ralph Fry were there, but Audrey ran our homebound ministry. And we would duplicate the sermons from Sunday, and then we'd put them in little piles, and people come by and get them and take them out to people that were homebound, couldn't get to church. I was the guy who duplicated all the tapes in there. And so I started doing that. Well, I started sensing that God was calling me to the ministry. Very clear, God was calling me to be a pastor. But I would kick it out the front door and then run around and come in the back door. I'd wake up thinking about it, go to bed thinking about it. I thought, no way, this is stupid, this is ridiculous. I don't even, three months ago, I didn't even know Jesus, who he was. I didn't know the Old Testament from the New Testament. I didn't know any of that stuff. And I'm just tripping up going, there is no way he's calling me to preach. And so, uh, one day I'm really fighting over this. I set up an appointment to come and talk with Chip, my pastor. And I'm sitting there duplicating tapes. Now, I know on this table I'm duplicating them. I'm sitting there and I've got this appointment with Chip coming in 15 minutes. And I'm going, this is crazy, Lord. He's going to think I'm a fool. When I go in there, you know, he's just going to think, you're, no, Jack, you're right. You're dumb. You're not called for ministry. And I said, Lord, I have got to have some assurance. I've got to have some confirmation. Now, you won't leave me alone on this, it seems, but I don't want to be a fool. And so I, I was sitting there. I said, I specifically prayed, Lord, I need confirmation on this. So as I'm duplicating these tapes, I'm taking the blank ones from over here, putting them in, duplicating them, and uh, putting them on this side. Then there was this box of old cassette tapes that they are bored. I thought, you know what, I'm just going to listen to a little bit of something. I just reached down in there. I just prayed that prayer. Lord, I've got to have confirmation if you're calling me to the ministry. And I said, I just want to listen to one. So I put it in another tape player I had sitting there. I promise you, I give you my word. It was a sermon by Dr. Charles Stanley. Now, it was in the middle of a sermon that somebody had stopped listening to it at some certain point. It was in the middle of it. I put it in hit play. And I promised. He said, I'm going to tell you today how to know if, you're call if God is calling you to the pastor. I had a random box of hundreds of empty tapes right at that point. I knew that was another confirmation. I hit the stop button. I started crying. I said, Lord, you've got to help me with this. I mean, again, he's just driving me, you know, confirming it. I got up and I went in Chip's office. I said, Chip, I can't wait. Can I talk to you? I think God's called me to ministry, but I feel like a fool. I know he could never use me as a pastor. And I sat and explained it to him. You know what Chip told me? He said, Jack, I think God's calling you to the ministry. But he said, you are now married. Kim and I have gotten married. And he said, you, you're now married. And if God's calling you, you and your wife are one in Christ. And he's going to give her a sense of this calling too. Because she's going to have to be a pastor's wife. So the first person I want you to go tell is your wife. And she should have a sense of it. I said, there's no way she can know. No way. I promise you, I went and picked her up. I went and picked you up that day. Thurston Motor Lines, over off of North Graham Street, I think it was, and I picked her up, and I'm acting weird, because i got to tell her. I mean, you got to understand, that long hair thing still hasn't changed a lot, and I, you know, I'm just going, I mean, we're in the middle of all this change, and I'm going, 
all right, I got to tell you something. She's like, what? And I said, I think God might be calling me to be a pastor. You know what she said? She said, I knew it. That's what she said. I went, how could you know it? I didn't even know it. Like, I'm not even sure of this yet. But again, just another confirmation after confirmation after confirmation of what God was doing in my life and what God was doing in our life. But I had dropped out of high school. Do you remember? I had no education. I wanted to get into an accredited college, so I had to go and take a GED and earn my general equivalent monthly diploma. And then found out that I had to go take the SAT to get into an accredited Bible college. And so here's what's crazy. At the SAT, I mean, man, I've been mentally checked out of school since the seventh grade. I slept through. They passed me on D minuses. Social promotion, they call it those days. Home kids were just keep your They did. I'm telling you. Troublemaking kids got passed on social promotion. Homesley, if you'll just keep your mouth shut. Our passion with a D minus. God is my word. God is my witness. Now, I took my head down. I was smoking weed. I was bombed anyway. I just took my head down to sleep. Still doing the deacons. Ain't never down then. <laughs> Not the bombs part, but anyway. <laughs> but Higgins uh, Higgins make you feel like you're bombs sometimes. But I went to take the SAT. I had zero study study habits since about the seventh, sixth grade. I answered all the questions. I had some logic about it. I answered all the questions I could answer, the ones I knew for sure. <coughs> then there was the category, eh, I might do it, I might be able to do a little math and get it figured out, so I started answering those. <coughs> then I hit the biggest section of the questions, the last section, was one I didn't have a clue about. It wasn't multiple choice, it was multiple guess. <laughs> so I realized I had not a chance in the world of passing this thing, so I prayed a prayer, and I said, God, you want me to be a pastor, you want me to get an education so I can be one, I'm going to hold my pencil over the, the little check cards, you know, the four little boxes or whatever, and when my pencil lid gets over the correct answer, if you want me to be a preacher, you're going to have to help me, God, with this. I was begging, just tell me which one is the right one. There's a vast majority of questions. So I promise you, I did that. I held my pencil over them, and I I hear that one. I wouldn't hear it with my ear, but I just sensed that one. That one. Do you know, about a week and a half later, they personally called me back. I scored a 1,240, which was high in those days. They have, but like they called me to congratulate me. You did tremendous. You were the highest out of the class. I'm serious. I couldn't believe it. I was blown away by another confirmation that the God who loved me, God who can restore all the years that the enemy has taken away was my God and I was his child. And oh, once again I knew. We went off. We sold the motorcycles, everything we owned, literally almost except the car. I had an old, old raggedy car that my, we always laugh about those two old cars. One my dad had given me that the brakes fell on constantly. And another one, a Chevette, Kim had that literally had cardboard inside of the doors made out of cardboard. <laughs> and I'm telling you, we packed up, took our dogs, went off 
graduated from Columbia Bible College with a degree in theology in 1989. God called me back after that to a very small church of around 45 people. We saw his blessing on it. We saw it eventually grow to over 1,800 people in Independence on Sunday. I thought I would die there. I literally sometimes thought I'd die there, but I, I thought that was my calling for life. And then God, after 25 years of completing it, started stirring in my heart again and wouldn't leave me alone and said, the time here is finished. We've got something else for you to do. Long story short, I turned in my resignation, didn't know where I was going. Within 30 minutes of turning in my resignation, and the folks here did not know I had just turned it in, I received a phone call from Ken Connell, the pastor church team. I actually went to talk to him once after that, and I walked up the stairs. I hadn't seen Jim in 20 years. I was going to meet us. You remember, Wanda, you were on the, the pastor church team. I was coming there to meet one and the rest of them, and Jim, bless his heart, he meets me, and I said, hey, you're Jim Barry, aren't you? And he said, he didn't, you didn't, did you know it was me? Yeah. I mean, when you saw me. But he didn't know what the candidate, you didn't know who the candidate was, right? You didn't know who the candidate was. He just knew they were using his office to talk to a candidate. Well, I come walking up the stairs, and I say, Jim Barry, and he said, oh, Jack Holmesley. <laughs> and looked at me like, and he's like, I, I don't think I'm supposed to see you. I don't think I'm supposed to see you. Something like that. And he's like, they're right in there. He just pointed at me and said, I guess the cat's out of the bag. I'm so, so grateful that God has worked it out for me to be here. Meredith, I see you and other folks smiling because you're in on those meetings. I know that I'm right where God wants me. I know that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Fully committed to his next plan for the next year to come. And I believe with all my heart that's going to be leading Calvary. But I'm not here today to talk about my ability. I'm here today to talk about my inability and your inability. And as I close today, here's my message to you. Young or old, I don't care what age you are, I don't care where you've been or what you've done, God can radically use you. He is a miracle-working God. Little is much when God is in it. Now, I'm not just saying that. I'm telling you, some of you think, me, I could never be a pastor. Me, he would call me to preach. He just may. He just may. Maybe it's not as crazy as you think. God can do it. Some of you think, boy, I'm in the middle of the situation, Jack, and you have no idea how many years God will never get me out of this. Oh, yes, he will. He'll get you through it. He's a faithful God. He's a miracle-working God. He is a master at turning crucifixions into resurrection. And I'm telling you, you have no idea, young or old, you have no idea how God could use you this day and in the future if you would just get sold out to Jesus Christ. Lock, stock, and barrel. You say, whatever I've got, God, it's yours. Whatever I've got, it's yours.
Just tell me which way to go, and I'll go. I believe God is still calling pastors, Christian workers, missionaries. I believe God is still calling seniors into the teaching ministry and the serving ministry. I believe God is still is still calling middle-aged people away from seeking everything that that maybe they have thought would be the life they wanted, and God wants to use you in, in something far greater. And I know, I don't just believe this, I know that he can do it. I know he can do it. What has God been stirring your heart about lately that you think is impossible? Huh? You have a tough situation you think, well, I'll never get through this. Oh, yes, you will. He's a faithful God. Are you being called to do something more, something deeper, something that you say, like me, there's no way, Lord, you, there's no way you're calling me to do this. Yes, he is. Maybe he is. Your and my only role is to surrender to him. I don't know how can it happen. You, you don't have to know how. He knows how. You just have to be faithful. You just have to be willing. And he can use you. He can use you. He wants to use you. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, I thank you for what you've done in my life. There is nobody like you. Abram takes something that is nothing. Even with all the negatives I have, Abram will take me and use me the way you have. And how much more you want to use me, and how much more you want to use everybody here, younger, old, Lord. Because you love the world, and you care, and you want people to be reached. More than anything else, God, your great heart burns for the lost all around us. You want to see people saved. God, if there are young people here today or people who would say, I think God may be calling me to ministry. I think he may be calling me to be a missionary or a pastor. God, speak very clearly to them. Don't let them get away from it. Remind them morning, midday, and night, midnight, that you equip, that you will provide, that no situation or no one is hopeless. God, if there are people here that you would be calling into some form of ministry to deepen their commitment at church, to become a Sunday school teacher, to become a, a singer, to become a musician for your glory, a servant of the Most High God, Lord, speak to them. Speak to them. Lord, if there are people here who need to receive you as Savior today so that they don't die and go to hell, they get to go to heaven. Would you speak to them and would you save them today? Lord, speak to us right now in Jesus' name.